You're listening to Pod Wars with Gary and Justice. Hey guys, this is Gary, and welcome to another episode of Pod Wars. On Pod Wars, we like to dissect Star Wars, Marvel, and our favorite little nuggets of geeky media. I'm here today with our illustrious host, Justice. What's up, guys? So, we're really psyched for the interview ahead here. We got to talk with Mark Austin, the man behind the mask of Boba Fett in Star Wars Special Edition. So, we're just excited to get to that, but before we do, we got some Twitter tidbits. Live from the Pod Nation, we bring you Twitter tidbits. All right, we want to thank Space Pals 94, Drinking the Movies, and Vitor for following us this week. But also, we did, I think, a really interesting poll. And so I asked, in light of the Darth Bane rumors going around, which Old Republic Sith Lord do you want Disney to make a live-action show first? The four options were Bane, Revan, Nihilus, and Exar Kun. Uh, no love for Exar Kun, which I felt was kind of you know interesting because he's got a pretty cool story like they all do. Um, but obviously, Revan won. You know, Nets the Old Republic, loved that game. Don't want to spoil it, everyone's ever played it, but, you know, whatever. Um... Anyway, that he won with fifty percent. Bane got thirty-six percent, and then Nihilus with fourteen percent. Gary, which one would you uh, want? I, I recently uh, listened to the Darth Bane trilogy in audiobook, and after that, I'm like, I need, I'd love, love, love to have a Bane series. Like those books are probably my favorite Star Wars books I've ever read. They are, and I think they're like one of the few books that I've read multiple, multiple times. So I would hope that they made a Bane series as well. I really hope it happens. I mean, he is canon now, thanks to Clone Wars. So the hope is there, everyone. But speaking of hope, we got a guy who was in a new hope. See what I did there, Justice? Got a conversation segue. Yeah, and it made me throw up in my mouth. <laughs> Guys, we're, we're excited for this interview. We do apologize that... Mark did warn us that he has a little Wookiee that likes to bark at squirrels. So if you hear that at some point in there, that's just Mark's Wookiee doing his thing. But we're excited for this interview coming up with Mark Austin. Okay, I'm curious on that because you showed us some art. What is that behind you there in that black frame? Is that like a bunch of doodles then? This is Foxy Loxy. I was a um, supervising animator for... Foxy Loxy and Chicken Little. Oh, I so love that movie. I love that movie as a kid. Yeah, so that's, a, that's my character sheet before I um, finalize the design of the character. Um, and this, if you see this one, oh no, you can't. This one's cool. It's cool. I did a, a convention with, um, you know, the toy father? The. the have you seen the the toys that made us? Is that the guy that has a huge the huge like no. Star Wars collection? Uh, no, not uh, I know who you're talking about. Uh, not him. Uh, Jim Swinjan. 
he was one of the guys that worked at Kenner for the original line of toys. Okay. And this guy, his name's Kim Simmons. He took every Star Wars toy picture, all the boxes, all the card backs as the, for the figures. He took all the photographs. And so I met him in uh, Mexico City, and he said, I'll, I'll send you a picture, uh, one, no, one of my photos of Boba Fett, um, for you to keep. So you know, he sent it and personalized it. And I said, thanks, Kim. I, I I've never seen that photo, and, and I poured over those card covers and those pamphlets, those boxes. I've never seen this picture. He goes, no, I took this one especially for you. So that's a 300 figure taken by the guy who did all the Star Wars toy photographs. Uh, that's cool. Having your own special picture. Wow. Oh. My, own, my own picture from the Kenner people. But, uh, yeah, I, I, there's a... I've got a ton of... My, my, my house is like a mini museum. But I've got tons of stuff everywhere. All right, guys, we'd like to introduce you to Mark Austin to Pod Wars today for our interview. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So for you guys who aren't familiar with his work, well, you probably are already. He's been working a bunch on animation for movies such as Days of Future Past, the second Thor movie, Avengers, and also was a little-known character on an also-little-known movie, New Hope Special Edition, you are the man behind the armor for Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, I was. It's my claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to definitely dive into that, but I'd like to just start out with a question that we usually give our guests here. Just Can you tell us what is your favorite Star Wars movie? There's no question. It's The Empire Strikes Back. No question. And I think reason, the, reason because, the reason for that is because uh, and that Star Wars was a phenomenon in 1977, but uh, I kind of went to the, the sequel not expecting to be, not expecting to raise the bar. I didn't know the bar could be raised any higher than it was. And so for that reason, I think Empire would always be kind of, oh my God, it just blew me off my feet when I saw it. So definitely Empire. And you got one of the biggest cinematic reveals in it. And following up after the immensity that is New Hope, it's been our most popular one among guests. We've yet to get a Phantom Menace lover and yet to get a sequel trilogy lover. But one day it's going to happen. And we haven't, even gotten, we haven't even gotten someone to say A New Hope. So everyone says Strike Back or, uh, yeah. or Return of the Jedi. I think because Empire Strikes Back, it, it was such a roller coaster from beginning to end. And it was very dark. And it just kept you on the edge of your seat from, from that Hoth battle all the way through to, you know, when they finally can calm down and, and watch Lando and Chewie go off, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the reason, though. Yeah, there's just something about that movie. But we, we mentioned, tease a little bit earlier, about how you got that opportunity to play Boba Fett. And we're kind of a side character why do you think boba fett has kind of gained this immense fandom i think a lot of it i think jeremy hit, hit on the head he was asked this question and he said it's he thinks it's to do with the design of the costume he said because uh you know you, you look at boba fett and he has this 
armor which has all these gadgets on it, and you want to know what they do. You look at you look at his the way he looks, and you're intrigued by it. And I think it's pulled from a lot of uh, pop culture, a lot of historical pop culture. You know, like a lot of people have great affinity for like the Spartans, and you've got that definite influence in the helmet of the Spartans has an influence from like the knights in armor, you know, because they had those, you know, the very slip helmets. It has, uh, you know, influences from uh, spaghetti westerns and, you know, bounty hunting. It has so many, it pulls from so many different kind of like loves, you know, that people have, uh, passions that people have, and it kind of combines them into one character. And that's what made me kind of, when I saw the, uh, it was 1979, I think, when we got that commercial for sent away for the figure. And just looking at the, the armor, that's when I became obsessed with Boba Fett. Like, I just saw this mail away figure, and I was, I have to get this guy. I, I have to know more about this guy. All the bio that came with it about him being a loner and a bounty hunter, and it's just like, I want, I want to know about this guy. And I think that was his doom. Because after Empire Strikes Back aired and Boba Fett became more popular than his hero characters, in the, especially in the figures, you know, that's why George made that decision, well, I'm going to kill him off and begin a Jedi then because, you know, it's not right. It's, it's unbalanced. I, you know, your hero is meant to be your most popular character, not the anti-hero or, as you say, like, you know, a, a secondary character, like a background character. Very few lines, I think five lines total. But uh, yeah, I, I think that was his doom. He was so well designed, he kind of outshone some of the other characters. So Lucas killed him off pretty quick. Yeah, and I know that, I, I mean, all the people around the Star Wars community have mixed views. Some people give that character flack for the line, amount of lines, but I kind of see it as a positive how. He had very few lines, very few little screen time. It somehow made that immense impact on people. He's got he's got movie presence in the very short footage he has on screen. It's like that's got to tell you a lot about the character, about the design of the character, anyway, or the or the the mystery. Because very much like the the man with no name, the Clint Eastwood the spaghetti western back uh, spaghetti western kind of origin. I think Boba Fett came from. You're intrigued by the man with no name. There's a mystery there. And I think because Boba Fett has that helmet and you're not sure where he's even looking, you know, he could be looking anywhere. You know, when I was in doing the uh, document 94 scene, and I got the instruction not to turn my body, but to, you know, to crank my eye line to look, make sure everything's, everything's cool before I leave. And so my eyes are like this, but the T visor lines up with a camera and I can't see this I'm in a suit and when I see the take it was uh, take number 11 that George picked and I was like wow it looks like I'm looking at the camera that's like a, the biggest no-no in you know acting uh, but George loved it he was like that's the one that's the one I love the fact that he looks like he doesn't give a crap even you know he'll even look at the camera got that much bravado I guess you know. So can you kind of share like how you got into wearing that suit and like, the, like some more experiences while filming that those scenes? Um, okay, try to make it quick because 
I made the mistake of thinking, okay, I'm going to put my, my whole journey from when I saw the first Star Wars movie at 11 years old to climbing into the suit. And I thought I'd, I'd break that down into maybe like four videos and I'd put it on YouTube. And it ended up 12 videos on, on my YouTube channel. I'm going to plug my YouTube channel, Oberfett, A-N-H-S-E, A New Hope Special Edition. Um, but it's a long story. I'll give you the condensed version. The condensed version is biggest Boba Fett fan that I knew. I, I, I didn't know anyone that was a bigger Boba Fett fan than me when I went to work for Lucasfilm. And my, my desk was this Boba Fett shrine. I end up getting access to see Sue at the archives because you know, the Star Wars archives at uh, Skywalker Ranch uh, off limits to ILM employees. I managed to get there, look at the suit, take pictures of the suit, drool over the suit. Uh, and so the, the guy who ran the archives, when they needed some uh, volunteers to dress up as characters for a Star Wars summit, uh, he gave me a call and he said, I know which one you would want, uh, but come along and try the suit on. If the suit doesn't fit, you can't do it. We'll find you an equally cool other character like. Like, like who? Who could be as cool as Boba Fett? <laughs> uh, he said, come on, one last time, try the suit on. And so I was nervous. I was more nervous trying that suit on than I was interviewing to work at Lucasfilm. And, uh, you know, that zipper going up was just like, ah. Uh, it was like those God rays coming. Even, even though we're indoors, God rays coming down. It's like I heard angels singing. It was a, uh, and then I thought, I thought that was, I mean, I was, uh, as a Boba Fett fan, I was, that was like the pinnacle, like wearing the flat suit. They said, well, what, while you're here, let's try on all the other pieces, you know, just to make sure we have everything. Okay. They dressed me up, they took Polaroids. And, uh, and so I got to do this summit at the ranch. And they had a second summit because it was so successful, another four hours in the suit. And then when they needed someone to jump in the suit, oh, what about that guy that just did those two summits? You know, he obviously fits the suit, that whole zip experience. He obviously is a guy that fits the suit, and so and he's a, an employee. And quite often, it was a regular thing that ILM employees were used as background extras, like a lot of the tattooing. Kind of like the citizens in Mos Eisley, a lot of those are ILM employees, just shot on the blue screen or shot out the back lot and added into the movie. Yeah, I, so I was on hand to, would you be prepared to come along and jump in the suit for this blue screen shoot? Um, I, I didn't believe it until I actually saw it. You know, I saw the, the, the dailies and saw me in Docking Bay 94. I didn't imagine that I would look like I was actually there. I thought it would look like I was headed or there'd be some giveaway, the lighting would be different or the, the, something would look like I'm pasted onto this 1976 footage. But when I saw the, the dailies, I'm like, oh my God, it looks like I was actually in Docking Bay 94 for real in 1976. Crazy. But that, that's the short version. And do you like the addition of the, the extra scenes? In the movie? Okay, not all the extra scenes. 
not all the actual scenes. There were some scenes that, you know, because like six months after I jumped in the suit, they had they had two slots. They had two positions for animator. But you know, they finally, after years and years and or decades of talking about making prequels, they finally were actually talking about re-releasing the movies in preparation for the prequels. And so they were going to do like a special edition just of New Hope at the time. It wasn't going to be an Empire. It wasn't going to be a Jedi special edition. Just, just New Hope. But luckily, I got the position of the creature animator. John Knoll took the spaceships. He was in London at the time uh, as an effects supervisor for Mission Impossible. But he was doing the spaceship shots in the evening. I was like, oh, throw me an X-Wing. Throw me one X-Wing shot. Come on. Yeah. He was like, all mine, all mine, all mine. So he took all the Millennium you know, Falcon shots, the, the, the X-Wings. So I, uh, I had the creatures. And if anyone other than George had asked me to do this job, I would have been kind of on the fence about it. But because George, this is George's movie, like, I've got no say in what he does with his movie, and neither has anybody else, really. So I wasn't... I didn't know, I, I left, as I said, I wasn't going to be a, an Empire Strikes Back special edition or a Jedi special edition. If they had, if I'd known there was, I would, probably wouldn't have left ILM. But after New Hope, I did leave ILM, I went to Disney. And uh, after I left, I heard about the Greedo shop. And, and I said, no, no, I, I wouldn't have known about that because I, I did all this. I was there for all the changes. No, no, they're doing the Greedo shot. What? And I, I didn't believe them until I saw it in the, in the theater. I, and even when I heard about it, I thought, because George had some weird ideas. He tried some weird stuff. We, we were in the theater one time watching the whole uh, detention block, AA-23, the whole princess rescue. We watched a version of that where he got the editor to cut out all the shots of uh, stormtroopers and uh, Imperial officers being shot. And in place of those shots, he wanted uh, a repeat of like the camera being blown out or the, the sensors being, like, being blown out because there's a lot of shots of random stuff on the wall blowing up. So we watched this version and it was like, it didn't make sense because they, they came down in the elevator, they start shooting, they shoot out a bunch of cameras and then there's no one around. And so once he saw that, he was like, oh, yeah, this, this sucks. Trash it. And so I thought, oh, maybe he's done the same thing with his Greedo thing. Because, uh, you know, I was at Disney at the time. And he said, uh, I heard about this Greedo idea. And I thought, no, oh, he's probably seen it and probably rejected it. Just like that prison break idea he had. And when I saw it in the theater, I was like, oh, my God, it, it ruins Han's arc. He's got to start the smuggler, the renegade, the rogue, the scoundrel, and end up the rebel hero, you know? So I'm, I, I don't condone all of the changes. There was a change I had to do, which I was, I think my worst shot was that whole Ronto rearing up thing, which started up out just as a couple of speeders going through and, and a Ronto walking through and then, in the course of about two to 
four minutes, it blew up into this whole mini kind of event. You know, the speed bike and scares the Ronto, it rears up and the Jawa falls off the back. This stuff, I, I, I could make a, a whole video on just the escalation of this shot from a, a background shot, just an establishing shot, to this ridiculous... I hated it. I hated doing it. I hated the uh, the Ronto model. The Ronto model was uh, it was very cheaply done back then. They were trying to use this idea of uh, repurposing for computer animation. So they took the bracket floor from Jurassic Park and they just slapped new skin on it. There's a Ronto. Here's a Ronto. Trouble is, the joint position in the skeleton affects the, the, the topography, the, the skin. If you have a joint position that's in the wrong place, it's going to really make... What happened with the Wonto is the neck vertebrae were too far back. So when he rears back, all the chest kind of moves and it's, it's just really badly made. It's, we were at such the, um, the spearhead of technology back then that we were trying things and uh, finding out mistakes as we went. There were things that we can do now in computer animation we couldn't do back then. Like we constraints, constraining one thing to another, we can do that now, but back then we couldn't. So there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of uh, things we did badly back then, and that that scene was just horrible, was horrendous. So yes, I I I, I love the fact that George came along and said, I want to I want to do some of the stuff that I wasn't able to do back in the day. But I don't condone all of the shots. And I don't condone all of the shots I did either. Uh, the first shot I did was the, the do-backs walk-in, and it looks very stop-motion because at, on that shot, there was too many cooks in the kitchen. It was the first shot to be animated. So you can imagine the first shot in Star Wars to be animated in 20 years. Everybody was in on dailies and giving their critique of how the do-back should move and i'm like just leave it to me i, I can make it move and there's people saying i'll oh, just raise his foot up on this frame and it just ended up looking like this stop motion thing it went over budget and i went to the producer and i said if you just let me do handle the animation and movement and everyone else can take worry about the reflection and the comping and all that it'll be much Cheaper. Uh, I use the word cheaper. And you go, oh, okay. So after that, the Dubek shots went through much smoother. And that's that's the only one of the bunch that I had a problem with is that opening shot where the you know got the, the lambda shutter in the background and the guy with the macro binoculars. That shot, that shot and the Ronto shot. Oh, I wish I could trash them or do them over. Yeah, kind of leading off of this environment that you're in animating, I, I imagine it has to be completely different than other projects you've worked on. Because I see the special edition is kind of like you have George Lucas coming to you with A New Hope. It's like having Shakespeare come to you with Hamlet and saying, hey, can you help me edit this? Like that's an immense kind of undertaking. It was, it was scary because I know how passionate fans are. I know how passionate I, I am as a Star Wars fan. And so, you know, over the years, I've dealt with the backlash. You know, people, some people hate what I did, hate me for doing it. But, um, you know, what can you do? It is, it is 
like second movie, second movie I ever worked on. I mean, I managed to hit gold on the second one, and uh, works on Star Wars. And I wasn't going to say no and let someone else do it. Um, I figured I would put as much love as I could into the animation and kind of. I saved a couple of shots. There was a shot. There's a shot I did, and it's a stormtrooper on the do back, and the original storyboard had just this butt of a do back walking away from camera. And I said it would be much better if we had the do back fake like three quarters on, and the stormtrooper rears him like, "Come on!" and, and goads him into falling in line, and then he turns and goes, and then we finish the shot the same way. But the the shot began with this big do back butt in the camera walking away from the camera and that was it so uh i think i saved that shot because that was an ugly shot i managed to convince george to change it yeah there's it i it was always going to be and i knew i was up on a up you know ready to take pot shots from all the fans that <laughs> didn't condone on what i was doing so yeah it's a very very sensitive area Especially if you're doing this with such cl close collaboration with George, it would be kind of. I imagine it would be tough to say no to him sometimes, if you or even voice yeah. disagreement. Well, it, it was kind of weird. Um, I'm working with George, uh, but the producer was like, you know, just just go to the back of the theater. I'm saying thing. I'll do the talking. So. Like I said, I had this idea for this Dubak shot. And when I put it into dailies, I had the original shot, Dubak's butt going over the hill. And I had my version of the guy coaxing the Dubak to go. And so the producer's like, how come there's two versions in, in dailies? You know? I said, well, one's an alt, alt alternative version called an, an alt ALT, an alt version. No, no, you can't put that in because that's going to offend Mr. Lucas. Well, not really, because he's got complete power. He says A or B. Which one do you like? Do you want the Dubak's butt in camera, or do you want the Dubak turning around? In I said, he, I'm giving him all the all the power. How's that? How's that going to offend him? No, no, you've got to take it out. I was at my desk, <laughs> and I was hovering over the delete button, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to leave him. I'm just going to leave it in. And so we go down into the theater, and the, the screen has the, the dailies, the shot we're looking at in the middle. There's George Lucas up here in his San Anselmo house. There's Rick McCallum up here at Skywalker Ranch, and there's us along the bottom with the camera, you know, facing us. And so I can see the producer's face on the screen. And my sh the second shot comes up, and his face turns red. He can't say anything. George is like, what's this? So I've put my hand up the back. And I said, um, uh, sorry, Mr. Lucas, this is uh, an alternative version I came up with. And suddenly uh, he came alive. And we had this great conversation. And uh, I, think, I, think that, I think the reason that he is so shy is, or he is the way he is, uh, it's because he's surrounded a lot by, I call them his yes men, people that just are going to say yes. That was a great, great idea. And uh, because there was somebody there that was not challenging him, but 
bringing something to discuss, you know, bringing something to the table, he suddenly kind of became alive. And, and so we hit it off after that point. But working with George was, was like, you know, the biggest thrill for me because at 11 years old when I saw Star Wars and read the book, I knew Ju- you know, George Lucas wrote it. I knew he directed it. He was the first director I knew the name of. Uh, so to work with him on Star Wars was uh, an honor. And uh, I wasn't going to say no to any of his suggestions. <laughs> and you probably got to, yeah, absolutely. You probably got to learn so much. I got to learn so much from him as well, like while being there, which is probably was such such a cool opportunity. We, there's a funny time where we were we were talking about the Rontos, but they hadn't been given a name. So this is what sounds about the Yes Men. So they were calling it. He was saying this the Brontosaurus thing. So this Bronto Bronto thing. This quite a this quite a Brontos. No, we can't call it Bronto. This quite a that's uh, quite a Ronto. And then that became it. But George had spoken. Someone wrote that down, Ronto. And it became blessed with name. It was pretty, it was a, a pretty, I don't know. I, I, wish, um, I wish I had cameras for eyes so I could have recorded half of my experiences with, you know, the likes of like George or Spielberg or Joss Whedon, just because, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, it's just so surreal to witness. I wish I could share them. <laughs> like canvas for eyes, I could share so many cool clips. Damn it. Next life, I'm going to get canvas for eyes. But then I mean, I Elon Musk would be on that in no time. But we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Boba Fett scenes from New Hope. Because you mentioned kind of the, the scenes that are a little bit more... I, there's ones that get mixed reactions but from fans. But I think that one overall tends to get more of that positive reaction just because the idea that Boba Fett's there the whole time is something exciting to fans. I went to, I went to the Hollywood Bowl. My wife got me um, tickets to see. They had the orchestra playing, doing all the music, and they, they showed the whole of New Hope. And uh, when, when it's so surreal seeing yourself walking on the screen. You know? But uh, when Boba Fett walked on the Hollywood Bowl, everyone just was waving their lightsabers and cheering and stuff. It was very cool. So, so Mark, we've talked a lot in this show about the Mandalorian and how we just appreciate the mask acting involved for that series. Can you kind of describe your experience? You've touched on it a little bit, but with the mass acting for Boba Fett for A New Hope. Uh, well, the acting in uh, that scene, Docking Bay 94, was limited. Um, there's two shots. Uh, basically, the first shot, I had to walk on and stop at, um, a piece of tape. But I had to be looking at uh, there's a piece of tape on the blue screen, which was Han Solo's last eye position, eye level, before he disappears up the ramp of the Millennium Falcon. So that was the only thing I had to uh, visually look at. I had to, well, I had to look at my mark to stop, but I had to be looking at where Harrison was. Um, and so that was all that was demanded of, of me on, on those things. When later on I did uh, uh, a whole series for the Boba Fett fan club called No Disintegrations, which 
involved a whole bunch of acting to dialogue with a helmet on. Um, it's hard. You have to make the helmet kind of work with. It's kind of like a, in animation when we do dialogue, a good animator, the character will look like he's talking before you even put the lip sync on because the body attitude is saying the dialogue. Like, really? You know, my, 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 my body does this. And if you hear, really, and I do that, you think, oh, that guy's saying, really, even if you couldn't see my face. So uh, you, you find that you have to extend your what would be just something that, you know, in acting, straight acting, you, you, my teacher was always heavy on just think of the emotion and say the, say the words. Don't try and create the words into some kind of poetic thing. Just think of the emotion and just say whatever the words are. You can't do that with a helmet with a, or the faceless character. You know, you have to go into pantomime a bit. So you have to extend the dialogue into head movements and really, and, and really kind of exaggerate those things. And you have to be aware as well of the, the T-visor. T-visor, the tendency is to lean forward, but that's a bad profile for Boba Fett. You need to keep your head back. Kind of jaw square it's uh it's very forced when when um when i walk on the first shot i walk on i got the gun and so i'm holding the gun just like you know I, i've been i did two summits of four hours each i'm used to handling this blaster you know I, i'm comfortable with it feels good and we did the first take and uh steve williams is directing and he came over and said now you need to crank, we need a better silhouette. We need the gun to, can you crank the gun like that? Like, well, that doesn't feel comfortable. Make it look comfortable. So I had to walk on with this gun cranked out to the side. It's not, the short answer is that it's, it's, it's not as simple as just saying the lines. When you have a mark in front of you, you have to exaggerate everything. You have to kind of push things even out of your comfort zone just to get them to read on on cam camera so so to describe for our listeners kind of you're showing us here these cool things with like the body language of boba fett how you're like extra twisted extra kind of upright puffed up posture and it translated really well into the film of giving him his boba fett bravado but you wouldn't think about that but it's very exaggerated in how you have to do it as an actor yeah, and, and so that, that way you have to trust your director. Um, so your director says something, even if you, you kind of question it, like, I was really? That, that doesn't feel right. Look on screen, it's like, yeah, he was right. Mm -hmm. He's looking through the camera, and you're not. You have an idea of what you look like, but until you know, it's, it's, it's all fantasy until you actually see it, he's looking at it, he can, he can make that call. So. That, and I imagine the mask with the eye line has to add just another immensity of challenge. Because did it even line up directly with your sight line that well? It's, I mean, thank, thank goodness for the, the, the vertical strip. Because that's the only thing that saved me for looking at my marks, for looking at where I had to go. If, there wasn't, if it was just that and there was no vertical, I, I don't think I could have, it would have been a lot more challenging to do those shots. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so used to it now because I, you know, doing, doing the, uh, 
doing the movie and then doing the um, No Disintegrations series of 22 episodes and just wearing the helmet for a lot of different events and costume uh, costume parties. Uh, I'm, I'm used to that now, but uh, yeah, it's challenging having that limited vision. Uh, you know, can't, can't see. Blind uh, a little bit. You had mentioned uh, noticed integrations. Can you kind of share, like, you know, just share with our listeners what that is? Yeah. Um, well, when I when I very early on, I became friends with Aaron Proctor, and he uh, he is responsible for the Boba Fett Fan Club website. And so he had on the website for the longest time this uh, flash animated series of Boba Fett just kind of in, in Slave One talking over the, uh, the com and just, you know, just made little skits but with kind of a cutout animation and made, made animated on, in Flash. And so I think it was 2016. I was having drinks with Aaron and he said, how about, you know, just have a think about this idea, but we're thinking about doing the same series, the same writer, the same guy who, who made this animated series, write these new episodes, but we shoot them live action. And so um, I was like, okay, how can we do this? So we, we kind of, you know, just brainstormed it over margaritas one evening <clears throat> Which help, Margarita's help. Uh, but uh, I fabricated the background. I fabricated these three panels that we, we, we hung and we connected. Uh, that was the background for Slave One. And we, uh, we shot these skit scenes. Uh, there's going to be only, uh, I think, less than 10 originally, but it ended up 22 of them. And um, I don't know. They just, we just, we made the first five and we had so much fun. We made another three and then we made another three and it just built and built and built. But they're basically skits. Um, I don't think Boba Fett is a comedic character. I mean, he, he is. He lends himself to comedy like in Robot Chicken. But I did want to, we had a discussion about the voice. I said, you know, how should we do the voice? Should we do Jason Wingren voice? Should we do, you know, the Django voice? What should we do for the voice? And we, we did a couple of variations and we got, uh, Aaron took them and he got people to look at them and, and give their input. And everyone said, oh, you should just do your voice because it kind of, it's in between the two. It's a, it's a London accent. But if you keep it a London accent, it's not, make, it's not taking itself too seriously. And we didn't want the series to take itself too seriously. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to be funny. It's poking fun at Boba Fett. But we didn't want to do it too, too realistically or too much. We didn't want to make fun of Boba Fett. So we changed the voice to make it kind of the the funny version of Boba Fett. So that's why Boba Fett has a, more of a Cockney accent. We kind of played it that way because it just was funnier. It has like a nice satirical bent to it. 
Like, I like the one where uh, he's mentioning how the Empire ship is called the Avenger, and he's like, what the hell is the Empire avenging? Yeah, yeah. I, everyone loves the uh, put a bounty on that. Everyone writes to me and says, oh, I love that you put a bounty on that. And uh, I had to go back and rewatch it because I, I forget half of the ones we did. Like the one with the poison dart. We, I mean, we did 22 of them. It was, and all the 22 look differently. Uh, that's down to Aaron because he directed them and we set up different lights and changed the background just slightly for each one to make it feel like it was a different day. Board slave one, but basically, it's a, a satirical uh, series uh, poking fun at the uh, bounty hunting business, uh, according to Boba Fett. Yeah, it's a it's a fun. It has like a respectful like scruffiness to them, while also getting that satirical bent. But to kind of shift r- over a little bit. Um, you've done a lot of other roles besides, obviously, with the New Hope that we're loving on here. But you transitioned, you mentioned, to Disney and then on to big projects like Avengers, X-Men. Can you kind of describe how just your role in animation has changed from those early days at ILM to now big-budget Avengers? Uh, well, ILM was uh, effects animation. I went to Disney, I did final animation you know, for the features. And uh, I was at Disney for 13 years, and 2009 is when I like, jumped ship. Um, and I went into um, Previs. Nobody knows what Previs is. There's Previs, Previs exists. Previs is basically uh, cinematography, it's uh, making a, a virtual set and, and putting your actors in there, animating your actors, doing what they're supposed to do in the scene, putting the cameras in, choosing the lens for the camera, the height of the camera, what the shot looks like. You're basically doing the job of the director. That's why you never see it on the bonus editions of DVDs because I'm not sure they want the public to know how much responsibility we have as previous artists. But you basically, you are the director for your sequence. You, and you present it to the director or the effects supervisor, whoever's steering that sequence. And you pitch it to them so they have their input. But for all intents and purposes, you're the cinematographer for that action sequence. And they basically want to pre-visit or work out what all the shots are going to look like in a virtual set to make it cheaper when it's a real set and you have that army of people there. The director can say, go up to the actor and say, this is your shot. This is what you'll be doing. You see you here. This is what the shot's going to look like. Now we're going to shoot it. And in their head, they have a very clear, much more than storyboards, idea of exactly what they're shooting. And so it saves money when they get into production. So previous is done pre-production. And that's why we get lost. We, We never get added to credits because it's, it's before production starts, before they actually started spending money. So um, kind of forgotten about by the time the film releases. But Previs is basically cinematography. Which I think Previs is starting to get more of the credit it deserves. I mean, we're lucky we've had chances to talk to a lot of people who have worked in Previs and introduce our listeners to it. But the 
I don't know if you've seen it, but the Mandalorian gallery, that kind of documentary series on the Mandalorian, it's kind of cool. John Favreau is really kind of giving you guys your time in the spotlight a little bit with previs and showing how immense that role is to what they're doing. It's huge. That's huge. I, I really thought when I started into previs in 2009, I thought, I thought, wow, I, I'm, I'm given much more responsibility than I was an animator. As an animator, you're responsible for your shot or your character within that shot. Um, you're working very much with the trees, whereas previs is working with the forest. Now you've got the whole sequence to worry about, how to structure it, where to make your high points, where to calm down. Um, you're basically you know, making sure that the story is told the best way it can to the audience, as clear as it can be to the audience. And so you have to choose you know, your shots and how your shots string together because you can lose someone over a cut. Your character's on one side of the screen and you cut and he's on the other side. Everyone's like, oh, oh, oh it's over there. You, know, you have to kind of guide the eye from shot to shot across the screen, especially when you're in the cinema and you're doing this. I always check my previews by going this close to the TV monitor when I, when I play it back, and then I play it back on my very small, like someone watching it on their phone, because now you have to take into consideration all the audience's viewing options. And some people don't look at movies in the theatre. Some people just watch them this big. You know, so. But your responsibility is to guide the audience through the story for that sequence. Even though, it's still, even though mayhem is happening, like Avengers, that final battle, our first version of the final battle was just under an hour long. We had to trim it down, I think 20, they wanted it 20 minutes. I think we got it down to 20 minutes at the end, but so many, uh, so many scenes and sequences got cut out of the Avengers that I was like, damn it. Damn it, they cut the sequence where Black Widow is going back to Stark Tower and for the Tesseract. Damn it. Okay, do you have any of those sequences in mind to share with us here? Anything that you wish kind of made the cut? That, uh, that one, that one, uh, it's, it's Black Widow. I, the one they always show on, on when they do the HBO kind of advertising Avengers come up, there's Black Widow on the back of that skiff with the... With the the alien and she's steering the skiff with the alien my version it was a garrot it she had a, a wire garrot with a glint around his neck and she was steering him with his neck he was like this so cool but when she if you watch the movie she 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 takes charge of this skiff and it cuts and the next time you see her she's at stark tower the sequence that, that I worked on was, it was uh, the, she's in the skiff, she comes to Stark Tower, she swings it around and starts going up Stark Tower. So we're going up, Stark Tower, up, up, up. She fires a grenade, blows out one level, one floor of windows, more or less. Then she's with the, with the grot or whatever, the daggers it ended up, she swings it around and does a backflip through and lands. And I'm sure they filmed part of it. So freaking cool. When it came out, I saw a, a shot of, it's weird seeing Scarlett Johansson do it, mimicking your animation. 
or the stunt woman mimicking your act, your action. But I saw the shot of her landing in Stark Tower from that sequence before the movie came out, thinking it was in there, and they must have cut it between then and the movie release. So I'm wondering how much they finished of that section because I saw that one shot. But uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor that you're like, damn it, that would have been cool. Damn it. Uh, that, that sounds incredible too with this. Scarlett Johansson just doing all the acrobatics, like slinging onto some guy's neck. Like, I, I imagine there's a million more crazy shots that you've worked on that you're like, oh, what the hell? Why didn't they include this? There was a huge, uh, there was a huge scene. It was um, Black Widow again, but doing all this uh, aerial stuff and, and parkour and taking out these guys. And we went, we got to a point where we even went to shoot the mocap for it. We went to an actual proper stunt place and we had to choreograph the stunt team to do this flip and then this jump and then she does this and string them all together and amazing that those guys can do that and then replicate it so that's like how good they are but we even shot all the mocap for it we never used it well we've discussed a lot of just well at least two really big projects that you worked on but what what would you say is your favorite project that you've worked on either within the realm of special effects, animation, what's kind of, if you had one that you had to say, I am just picture-perfect proud of, what would you choose? I don't know. It depends on the criteria. Like, some, some projects are really memorable because we had a good team. Like, the camaraderie during the movie because of the team that I was in the room with from, from the beginning to the end. Uh, like, I didn't get a credit on Predator, the, the re-release of Predator couple of years ago uh they never used my my the section that i animated uh, previous so i didn't deserve a credit but that was a fun movie just because of the room i was in i was in these three great guys and we just had such good banter every day so you could say you know it depends on what the criteria is is it because of the people you work with is it because of the subject matter you know because then, then star wars might win it you know is it because of uh, working with the director? Like the biggest thrill director-wise was working with Spielberg on Warhols. That was huge for me. Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's hard to say because I've done so many. Uh, all fighting for, or, you know, they all could be contenders for a favorite. I don't know kind of like picking a favorite child at some point in a favorite spaceship from star wars it's impossible I, I, I if i have to pick one i'd have to go slave one but it could be slave one it could be the falcon it could be the star destroyer you know I, there's so many how can you pick one speaking of uh spaceships did, are you gonna play the star wars squadrons game or do you not have time to do that uh, i i would probably jump onto that i i can't i can't resist the star wars game especially when like, you know, they have the Battlefront games. And I wish they would just had a, can I just walk around the Death Star looking at stuff version? You know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't care about the fighting. I just want to have a look around and look at the stuff. And, yeah. there goes, <laughs> oh, there's, there's our Wookiee in the background that you warned us about. <laughs> no, not that Wookiee. We've been talking about Dubacks. I have a painting Ooh, recently. Got it. It's a do-back related. 
odd question. What artist uh, did the painting? Do you know? I did. Oh, hey, you did the painting. That's awesome. Yeah. I've got, I've got another couple here. This is a... Uh, oh, that's a dope one of, of Boba. I love it. Here's a little Darth Vader action. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. I have... Well, my dining room has a whole bunch of paintings just like that. But, uh, yeah. If you go to my YouTube channel, you get to see that being painted in time-lapse. That's awesome. My goal is to eventually... My hope is that I wish I was uh, artistically talented enough to fill my entire apartment with Star Wars stuff. Thankfully, my wife is. She's made a few baby Yodas for me, but that's the extent of it all. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in one room, and that's the dining room. So the dining room has, you know, uh, display cabinets in it, but that's my one Star Wars room. And my full-size Boba Fett is over there as well. But yeah, just one room. A full-size? Oh, that's awesome. And when, when my kids were growing up, all my friends would say, they aren't, aren't scared of that Boba Fett standing there. I said, they, they've grown up, they, they don't even see him. You know, he just stands there. But everyone that comes into, comes into the house is like, whoa, what? Like Boba Fett. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay, we have to ask. So you mentioned The Mandalorian. What are your thoughts so far in The Mandalorian series? I love The Mandalorian. Um, you know, for the longest time, I was wondering whether I, I was going to love anything Star Wars as much as the original trilogy. I didn't know if I was one of those jaded fans that would just never love anything new Star Wars related. But, and I really did believe that of myself. Uh, but when The Mandalorian came out, uh, when Rogue One came out, Han Solo movie, those three... I, I love as much as the original trilogy. A lot of people don't like the Han Solo movie. I love it. I think when I heard that Ron Howard was uh, consciously trying to make the editing and the shots uh, as leisurely as the 70s made movie, because now we cut so fast, that like MTV changed editing, you know, just all MTV editing, destroying my own office. But, uh, Ron Howard slow everything down and make it more of a 70s kind of feel. And he studied kind of the, the, the length of shots and he took his time with it. And it does, it feels like a Star Wars movie. It didn't the first viewing because it was new. The second viewing, I was like, oh my God, this is like one, one of my favorite movies of, of Star Wars. Yeah, that Rogue One, those two, uh, I love. And Mandalorian series, obviously, uh, I love. Anything that kind of keeps it within that time period of the original trilogy. I love that time period. I love the Stormtrooper design. I was so... I think J.J. Abrams made a mistake get, changing the Stormtrooper design. I know we'd seen the evolution in the prequels, but we should, he should have just kept it the classic Stormtrooper, I think. I think he uh, dropped the ball a bit there. But... You know, when you see Rogue One, there's Stormtroopers again. It feels like Star Wars again. Uh, when you see Han Solo movie, it's Stormtroopers. You, you no, know, when you see the Mandalorian, it's Stormtroopers. I think Stormtroopers are the key for me. I, before Boba Fett was around, I, after New Hope, before Empire, Stormtroopers were my passion. 
like stormtroopers were in. I love mm. that that helmet. Oh my god, I, I was obsessed. And then Boba Fett squashed that. But stormtroopers always got a, a, a solid place in my heart. I think you're definitely right that like Rogue One and Solo. They definitely nailed that original trilogy look because there's a different feel to those movies compared to the rest of Star Wars, the sequels, the prequels. They just have this indiscernible nature to them. That I don't really know if it's a good, easy to describe. I mean, I think, I think, I think they did uh, an amazing job with the, the sequels. You know, seven, eight, nine. Um, it and 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 as much as I love to love them as much as the original trilogy you can't make yourself love something so i don't know i i will always hold the original trilogy you know as like you know that, that's that's what i grew up with but i i feel like the mandalorian has done it justice cancel the movie has done it justice rogue one did it justice and they they kind of added to that those three films for me um, so I, I'm not that. I, I'm, I was like I said. I was really worried. I was that jaded Star Wars fan that would never like anything new. But I do. I can't wait for season two of Mandalorian. I, I must have watched that series in double figures. The whole thing, like just watch it and I go through, watch it again. I watch it again. <laughs> figures easy. And you're probably exci- really excited. They're introducing Boba Fett in season two. Apparently, uh, yeah. You know, well, I've of- always been. I've always been worried about Boba Fett, only because he's, you know, I was saying about how Star Wars is a sensitive subject for fans. And Boba Fett is super hypersensitive. So I hope they, they have to make him look good or his fans are going to go crazy. He has to look good. You know, he can't be like, you know, uh, they can't do what George did at the beginning of the Jedi and throw him down a Sarlacc or something like that. They, they gotta, they're going to make him... Like, the reason I love this episode six of The Mandalorian is because you actually, for the first time, get to see why the Mandalorians are given that... You know, what's the word I'm looking for? Bravado. Or, or, or you know, why, 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 what's so good about Mandalorians? You know, they, they say even in the, in the episode, and then he shows why. He shows that they're fast thinking. They just kind of like James Bond. They will use what's around them to their advantage. They're quick thinking. Um, I hope they do that with Boba Fett because we've never seen Boba Fett on his A game. We saw him with the Sarlacc. That was his worst day. I want to see his best day. So I'm hoping the, Man- the Mandalorian delivers. Show why Boba Fett is given that respect that he is. Right, he's not tied down to the Empire controlling him. Like he might have that freedom to go and do, you know, what Boba Fett would do. I just, you know, we saw him kind of doing his thing in Jedi to the point where, you know, Boba Fett, Boba Fett, and that whole, uh, it's like his, it's like, I've seen his worst day. I want to see his best day. I want to see him really you know, in some butt. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope they don't <laughs> retouch his armor too much because that will be kind of like messing with a masterpiece, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but I don't mind them messing with it a bit because, you know, it's, it's weird to think of, you know, you've got Empire and you've got Jedi. They're not the same time period. There's time between. You know, uh, I'm glad that there's subtle differences in, in his armor. Like, why would it be the same? I don't wear the same thing every day. Even, even uh, people that do wear uniforms um, don't look the same every day. Like, why, why would you try and make your appearance exactly the same as it was three years ago? You know? uh, I, I'm glad that there's subtle differences. I wouldn't mind if there was a slight difference because it's a, afterwards. Maybe something's missing, something's broken, something's replaced. A lot of people gave me a lot of... Uh, a lot of people complained, like, how come that in, in your scene the mythosaur skull is on this side? It's like that's the way that the costume department put the suit together. Why is it such a big deal? Like, why? Why? Because why, why would you think when someone gets dressed, they wouldn't have, you know, multiple shoulder pads, multiple helmets? Why would you have one? I mean, when I went to, I said I went to the archives to take pictures of the Boba Fett helmet and the, the armor. And when I went there, they said they have enough pieces to probably make between five and seven full Boba Fett costumes. Because when you're on set and something gets broken, what do you do? Stop shooting? No, you have the replacement. Okay, we get another shoulder pad, get another gauntlet. They have to have replacements in case something breaks on camera or on set. You have to do it, or else everything has to stop. And you have to go and fabricate it and call everyone back another day. That doesn't happen in movies. They always have a backup. And so if he has, you know, if, he, if he's a, uh, a bounty hunter, he would have, you know, they did it in The Mandalorian. He has different armor at the beginning. He gets it replaced. I'm glad that there's subtle changes. I wouldn't mind if they made a subtle change because something got destroyed or damaged in the style. That's actually a good point, because I am wondering how they're going to resurrect him with that, because we always hear rumors that George was thinking about in Return of the Jedi having a scene of Boba Fett coming out of the Sarlacc pit, but decided to scrap it. So I'm wondering how they're going to reconcile the story with bring Boba Fett back. When I was at ILM, I, I wrote a short story about him escaping from the Sarlacc, and uh, I sent it to my friends, and they were like, this is cool, you should write more. And I wrote a bit more, and end up 32 no, 34 chapters I wrote, uh, like two-thirds of a, of, a, of a novel. So I've always wanted to go back and finish it. They posted the first four chapters on the Boba Fett Fan Club uh, website. It's actually on there still. But um, I, will, I will finish it when I get some time. I just <laughs> I have to find time to do these things. It's, like, it's hard. Like I said, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of movies. I'm working right now on a movie for Netflix. I can't tell you what it is, but it's an animated movie for Netflix. But my 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 weeks are always busy. But when I do get some leisure time, I will finish that story and have my version of how he escaped from the Sarlacc. So one one day, 
We're going to have to look that up on the Boba Fett website then, get kind of a little taste of it. Because that's how many chapters did you say it was so far? Uh, they only posted, I think, three or four. But uh, I had written the first 34. I've written the first two-thirds of the book. Could be a book. So I have to finish it at some point, because otherwise it's a waste, you know? I got it. I got it's, it from here. Like, be cool have like your own Legends Star Wars book. That'd be really cool. Boba Fett's history according to Boba Fett. This is my version. <laughs> I love that. Well, Justice, do you want to round him out here with our final question? Yeah, I, I like asking this question. Fans know uh, just because, you know, you're making content that we all love and can always learn from people's experience. So I want to know, what is your greatest professional failure and how have you learned from that experience? Hmm. Greatest professional failure. I don't know. I, I've, I mean, I, I've dropped the ball a few times. But uh, I've been very lucky that, uh, in my career that I haven't made any huge mistakes that I can think of. Hmm. I don't know. I, I mean, or, maybe you, sent, you sent me that question as something to think about before. And I was racking my brains to try and think of something that, I mean, I, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes, don't get me wrong. I couldn't think of a greatest professional failure that, that stood out that I'm like, ah, I could only go back and, you know, I, I wouldn't mind going back and redoing a couple of those shots for New Hope Special Edition, you know, knowing what I know now. Or how about this? If someone was interested in getting to animation or um, just previs or whatnot what would what's some advice you would give them before you know stepping into that industry just be prepared to have plenty of competition because you know when i when i became an animator it wasn't as uh well there weren't as many as there are now you know you look at the end of uh, movie credits and you come to the animation it's just columns and columns and columns and columns of artists there's so many in the industry now um so if anyone's you know thinking i'd like to do that just be prepared that there's plenty of other people competing for you know positions on the movies you 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 you've got to have something you've got to be very confident in what you can bring just be prepared to you know to fight for those jobs because it's it's a growing industry there's so many people know what animation is now when, when i became an animator and I put it down as my profession, people will ask me what that means. I'd be like, what, what, what is this, an animator? Oh, uh, you work on what? They thought it was some, some kind of technical position or they didn't know what it was. Now, it's kind of like, I, I think because of movies and because of uh, social media and because of a lot of the behind-the-scenes exposure when it comes to making these movies, uh, everyone knows what an animator is, or most people do now. But um, just be prepared that you know, because it's very, uh, very popular profession, you're going to have your work cut out for you. <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, which I b imagine is a bit of a double-edged sword. That now that it's growing in recognition. Like you guys are finally getting recognized for a lot of the work that otherwise is either put into that, 
you know, last bit of the credits or uncredited. You're getting that recognition now, but it also is that double edge of, well, now you got a lot of young guns and a lot of people coming up and heavy competition in the industry. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, I, I'm all for, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of um, uh, mentoring. So I have a lot of animators that like me to look at their work and, and kind of give them some like guidance on it. And I'm quite happy to. Um, I, I, never, I never had that mentorship until I got to Disney. Um, so it, it, there are a lot of pitfalls and there are a lot of, uh, you know, tips and tricks to be shared. I should really do a tips and tricks animation series on my, my channel one time. Again, when I got time, I will help those artists out. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a very popular industry, so prepare, be prepared to fight, guys. If you're going to be an animator, bring, bring your, best, you know, your best, best work with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'd like to thank you so much again for coming on the show, Mark. I know, personally, I really appreciate, one, that you show this great love for the material of Star Wars and all that you've worked on here and even the humility of realizing that some stuff might not be accepted wholeheartedly by fans but finding the good, the bad and just the appreciation for the art of the series we love so thank you again so much and thank you for having me on it, it's, it's really nice like you said, you know uh, it wasn't until we have these kind of podcasts or you know, social media that people ever knew about the, the men behind the masks or the, the people behind the animation or you know the people that crafted that shot so um thank you for like you know giving me a, a face you know it's been there was plenty of decades where i was invisible so thank you guys where can our fans find you online you can find me if you if you do a search for boba fett anhse that's a safe bet because there's not many other people that use that moniker. Uh, but a new host special edition, that stands for. Uh, I have a YouTube, I'm on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram. Yeah, Boba Fett, A-N-H-S-E. So everyone, get in touch with his stuff here. You can check out his Notice Integration series as well to get a little bit more Boba Fett in your life. Like usual, you guys can all get in touch with us at Podwars Podcast on Twitter and askpodwarspodcast at gmail.com. Please give a like, a subscribe, and a little bit of a review. Tell us your thoughts on the character of Boba Fett, and we'll give you a shout out on the show. Everyone, have a great week.